0: Hi, everybody! Welcome to Walton Biz Talk, where we have casual conversations about professional things. We're a student run podcast created by the Business Communication Lab in the Sam M. Walton College of Business. I'm Ryan Decker.
1: And I'm Jesse Schneeblen.
0: And this season, we're exploring the topic of health. We're going to explore a lot of different interdisciplinary approaches to the subject of health and really see what it is and why it's an important topic to discuss. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Walton Biz Talk. Today we're here with Katrina Erickson and Dr. Casey Kaiser. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you, I'm happy to be here.
3: Thank you, Ryan, and happy birthday. Oh,
2: thank
3: you. (laughs) Yeah, it is Ryan's
1: 21st birthday today, actually. Time flies. (laughs) And he's working hard. (laughs) Oh yeah.
0: Well, I guess to get started, um, can we just start, can you each tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Dr. Casey Kaiser, and I am an assistant professor in the English department. And I actually teach a medical humanities colloquium, a service learning course for pre-med students. Um, And actually, uh, we just uh, spearheaded and launched a new medical humanities minor. And so that became available to students in the fall. So I direct that program. And I used to be involved with the health coaches program, um, which was a joint partnership between Washington Regional and the university, a series of three service learning courses where we train undergrad pre-health profession students to work with a healthcare team to improve outcomes for chronically ill patients. Mm-hmm. So I've actually transitioned out of that role a little bit um, now, but um, you know I, I did that for the past five years. Wow. Awesome.
3: Hi, and I'm Katrina Erickson. I'm an international business economics major, and I'm, I have a, no, a minor in nonprofit studies. And throughout my college education, I've been able to study in China, India, Tanzania, and Uganda. So through those opportunities, I've had a lot of interactions with different public healthcare systems, and it's been really interesting.
2: That's
0: yeah. awesome. Yeah. Can either of you speak to the differences between the US healthcare system and other ones you've seen?
3: Um, well, in the United States, everyone has, well, not everyone, but a lot of people have healthcare through their um, their employer, but in developing countries, it is not like that at all. They don't even have a salary job often, so it's been really interesting seeing how in the United States, a lot of people have access to healthcare, even though it, even, it really is a broken system in the United States as well, but in developing economies, they don't even have the kind of access that we have, um, so it's been really interesting. Learning that we have privilege in the United States and we can help overseas, but we can also learn a lot from how other countries do their um, healthcare systems as well.
2: Mm. Yeah, I would agree that there's a lot of problems with the healthcare system in the United States. We spend a lot of money and don't get um, very good outcomes, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of, um, as you said, potentially learn from other models and other countries um, and really kind of assess what we can do to improve healthcare here.
1: Can I ask a little bit about uh, Dr. Kaiser, a little bit about just your background? What is the relationship between humanities and the medical field? Because I don't I wouldn't I don't think initially I would see that connection. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is that relationship like? Or even how on earth did you get <laughs> involved in that space?
2: Right. Um well, I had experience with service learning and community-engaged pedagogy, but really no, no previous experience with medicine or science. Um, but because it was a service learning course, uh, the medical humanities course, that's kind of how I got involved teaching it. Um, and medical humanities is a, a field that emerged in the 1970s, 1980s, that really um keeps in mind the ways that the arts and the humanities um, and social sciences can contribute to uh, medical education and practice. Um, So we can learn about um, medicine through studying the history of medicine. Um, We can think about how uh, medicine is represented on the stage or in literature or film. Um, And obviously, culture is an important part of medicine. So... The medical humanities takes into account all of those things. And a related field is narrative medicine, and a lot of my research focuses on that with the idea that um, the medical encounter is actually a a very storied encounter at its core, right? The the patient brings to the physician their story. The physician brings to that encounter all their own stories, stories of past patients, stories of colleagues, Howard Brody, a critic that I really enjoy, says that uh, patients come to doctors with broken stories as much as they do um, broken bones. Mm. So um, I don't know if that kind of answers the question that yeah. there really is a lot of um, you know interplay between um, the humanities and especially my own field um, of English and literature and medicine. Right. That's really mm-hmm.
0: interesting. Last we- oh, go ahead. <laughs>
2: Yeah, last week we uh, talked about health
0: communication, so mm-hmm. kind of along yeah. the same lines there about how that information transfers, or how the information is transferred between the doctor and the patient, mm-hmm. uh, as right. well as other communication
3: interactions. As and
1: well. how people receive, like how people receive messages, mm-hmm. and like how we can craft messages effectively for different audiences. So I think that's along those lines. Um, I-, I just think it's really interesting what you mentioned about looking at all those all the ways in which we communicate messages, what it looks like on the stage, what it looks like in literature. I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, so it's just maybe you know, maybe you don't know, that a lot of like uh, med students or pre-med students or doctors will minor in English. Is that true?
2: There is definitely a trend in that direction okay. because um, med schools are hoping to find more well-rounded applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that it's a huge trend I've witnessed here. I've mm-hmm. had three uh english majors that were also pre-med uh but they were wonderful and and made me really happy um but the the trend definitely is moving in that direction certainly
1: Mm. Um, what do you think though like what do you think that degree and i won't make this all about english (laughs) but uh what do you think that degree like how does that benefit a pre-med student like what is the value of like an english degree for a medical field
2: Right. Um, So I think that the tools that are needed for literary analysis are tools that can help you, um, you know, analyze patients, uh, analyze, you know, body cues, um, language, not only what is said, but maybe the gaps in the narrative, what's not said. So I think some of those analytical skills are something that you can really cultivate through studying literature. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it also helps us just to... Understand the human condition. Um, We can read about so many more experiences than we can actually have on our own and that in bringing those Experiences to encounters with patients um, can provide a lot of insight
0: Yeah, I think that might also help with understanding cultural differences as well. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, and Katrina since you've had a lot of Experiences with different cultures. uh, What can you tell us about what you've learned from interacting with a lot of these people from these different cultures?
3: It's been different in every country that I go to. Um, when I was in Uganda, I was in a really rural village, and I was eight hours from the closest capital city with the hospitals, and I got really sick, really bad stomach issue, and I was out of it. And they gave me an all-natural drink from medicine that they gathered from plants in the jungle, and I was better in 24 hours. Uh, so just That was... I was a little out of it, so I drank it with no questions, and I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. But. That's, that's really
0: interesting, because you hear a lot about, like, here in the U.S., we obviously don't have as much of that, um, but you hear about, like, the marvels of modern medicine, mm. and mm-hmm. about all the pharmaceuticals, and all these things, which are great. They're, they're fantastic in their own right, but it's, it's interesting how a lot of countries have their own, or a lot of cultures have their own, you know, remedies or medicines mm-hmm. that have been passed down that they work, too. So there's not just one answer.
3: Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. I went on a tour of the jungle with some of my friends who are Ugandan and they showed me different plants that they use for all kinds of things um, from stomach issues to malaria to broken bones. And it was really interesting because it was all passed down verbally. They have no written record of it. Mm. Mm. Um, And I think that's a lot different from our culture, which we're a very visual culture and the auditory culture. It's interesting how that interacts with the medical field as well.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: How did did those experiences abroad, like, change your perception of the American healthcare system? Or, like, you know, like, when you go to the doctor now, do you have, like, all these thoughts about, you know,
3: alternate ways to heal or... Mostly, I just get frustrated with the prices in the yeah. United States. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> um, a big thing that's different is the pharmacies in developing countries. You can just go in without a prescription and buy any prescription pill that you need, mm. um, any, anything from antibiotics to other prescription pills, and it's like less than 25 cents often. Um, wow. And instead of being sold in bottles, it's often sold by like six pills in a little packet. So that people who can't afford a whole bottle have access to a a small amount of pills. Hmm. But because of that easy access, there's been a lot of overuse of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So they're building up resistance often. Um, Mm -hmm. Have you experienced anything like that?
2: Yeah. So um, in my medical humanities class, we do have a section on culture and medicine. And it's always interesting because I do have students who've traveled lots of different places and studied abroad. Mm-hmm. And they always bring those experiences to our conversations, you know, of how they were treated in a similar way, you know, that you explained when they were ill somewhere else. Um, and I think that oftentimes, you know, people can be sort of you know, negative about uh, treatments that might not mm-hmm. sort of fit the kind of conventional, mm-hmm. you know, Western model, but there are value in, you know, lots of different approaches. So, mm-hmm. and, and personally I've had, you know, experiences too, just uh, not being anywhere, you know, necessarily super exotic, but Italy or London, mm-hmm. just those experiences of getting def- getting sick and, you know, how you have to go about asking for help at the pharmacy or, you know, what they're able to give you, um, you know, it's just a different experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it helps you to to sort of understand that maybe we think of medicine as this kind of, you know, be all end all science and it really isn't. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. There's a lot that goes into medicine yes. besides just, you know, what what is the compound or molecule that helps like solve this?
2: Exactly. A lot of
0: times they're there's mental aspects with it too, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, I mean, we see that with placebo effects or things like that, right. but it's almost not the actual medicine that's solving the problem, but the perception that something is solving the problem.
2: Exactly. And and that's connected to story too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that same critic that I that I quoted earlier, he talks about the placebo effect as a really good way to illustrate that the stories that people attach to experiences actually have, you know, mm actual tangible outcomes mm-hmm. right. and that those outcomes are often better when a when a good story is attached mm-hmm. that's really interesting
1: well what um i mean should katrina like uh you know you mentioned that you know how the arts and social sciences contribute to medical practice and humanities but i'm interested katrina like What do you see like international business or business in general or even economics? Like what does that contribute to medical practices or what have you seen in terms of like how it works here and maybe how it works in other places?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I've the reason I studied international business is because I'm really passionate about economic development and Mm -hmm. I think health is always going to be a part of the conversation of um, development because I mean, it's the foundation of life and you can't have an economic intervention when there's huge healthcare issues going mm-hmm. on. Um, so I've just really learned how, um, as a business student, I need to have a multidimensional approach to things. I have to have design thinking and human-centered design ideas so that I don't have this like very narrow-minded way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Because often business, as we've mentioned, is very efficiency-based. But does that mean that should necessarily apply to healthcare and development? Not necessarily. Um, when I was in Uganda, we had a a medical clinic and we saw 700 patients in three days with a team of 15 people. And Mm -hmm. I really disagreed with that, but, um, I wasn't in charge and (laughs) it, it led to a lot of issues. We were able to help a lot of people, but I felt like it was a bandaid on a bullet hole because Mm -hmm. you give someone a medication, what are they going to do when Americans leave? Um, they don't have access to that again. So it's really important in the development sense to have sustainable solutions and work with a very dimensional team with, with different humanities and business and medical professionals. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the human-centered design approach is a narrative
3: approach, right? It's about, can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Absolutely. I wrote my um, my thesis on human cent- human-centered design in India. So it's about before you go into a community, you should go to that community and do research before you implement a solution and your solution beat should come from the community itself Mm -hmm. because often they know what they need more than we do as outsiders. So it's about um, creating solutions from the community itself. Can you like, is there an example
1: or anything that you can provide? Like how have you seen that working?
3: Yeah, I was researching female feticide in India, which is when they will abort a child because they think it's a girl based on their patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. Um, So, this nonprofit I was working with, they, there's many different ways you could go about trying to prevent. You could attack the patriarchal system, or you could um, have laws in place where you try to enforce laws. But when you think about it, throwing a woman in prison because of, of a patriarchal society is not a good solution. Right. So they settled on education. So they use human-centered design to, as an approach and came across prevention as the best way to stop it. So it's really about preventing future generations from becoming mothers in the patriarchal society and future husbands from those ideas. So education about women's rights and different medical opportunities so that if they do do an abortion, it's safely. um, And different ideas like that. That was my thesis. That's
0: (laughs) a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I, th- I think it's also really great to recognize that there are some downfalls to those types of trips. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I feel like so often students go on those types of trips and it really opens their eyes and it changes their life. Um, but then they get this sort of, you know, quote, savior mentality, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> that they've, you know, changed the world. Right. And so I think it's it's really good for students to be aware mm-hmm. of those limitations and, I'm glad that there are programs where, um, you know, that's being taught and people are being, um, aware <clears throat> of that, hopefully. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
1: I think that's the, that's really the core behind the human centered design, right? It's not, it's to eliminate that savior mentality mm-hmm. of like, let me go in with my Western ideologies mm-hmm. and go <laughs> project, uh, my belief systems on you. But like, what is the culture? What is, what does the community itself want? And how we can how can we be a force to to help uh, implement that change? Are mm-hmm. you involved? So, just the language that you're speaking. Are you like w- with this conversation? Are you involved with the Office of Entrepreneurship in any form or fashion? Or like
3: I've worked a lot with Dr. Rogelio Contras. Yeah. Okay. he was my thesis <laughs> okay. advisor. I'm Wonderful. in this class right now called Social Innovation. So, yeah. if anyone's interested in these, they should definitely take that class. It's an honors colloquium, and we work on projects um, featured around social innovation in Fayetteville and Northwest Arkansas itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been really interesting as well, applying the things I've learned overseas into a local setting. It's been really interesting.
0: Right. Yeah, we talked about the savior mentality. It's also interesting that we think that we have all the solutions when the U.S. healthcare system may not even be that great anyway, right? <laughs> and so that's really interesting. That I mean, you brought up earlier that it's you know it may be a broken system, or there's there's problems with it that we need to address. What are some of those problems um, just as you've experienced?
2: I think that one of the things that I've encountered um, is that there is a bit of a mistrust uh, between, you know, the larger population and patients and the healthcare system as a whole. Um, you know, and some of that has very sort of specific roots with specific populations, if we think about um, pretty dark Uh, times in in our history, such as the Tuskegee syphilis study. um, We can see how contemporary African-Americans might have mistrust for the healthcare system, if they know that history, um, but you know, I think it happens just in a more general sense too. People are, you know, worried that they're spending all their money, and they're, you know, their doctors aren't listening to them, mm-hmm. um, or or they're just not understanding. Right? There's a a communication barrier that's that's happening, and so I think that one of the things the U.S. can do. Um better is to work to increase trust between the general population mm-hmm. and um, practitioners in the system mm-hmm.
3: uh, there's so much I, <laughs> I, I
2: don't even know where to start
3: i I mean just for me I think I read recently that there's been a lot of disruptive industries there was Apple, and the industry that's most primed for disruption right now is healthcare right. um, so I think it's going to be really interesting in the next two decades how healthcare right. changes because it has to. We're at a breaking point. Mm-hmm. I even had a coworker who said he's not investing in healthcare in any way or because he believes we'll have free healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. So that was baffling to me. But uh, <laughs> like uh, it's yeah. a gamble. But yeah,
1: <laughs> but yeah. that 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 you're talking about disrupting the system. I mean. I think, you know, I will not name any corporations, but there are corporations getting into the healthcare field right Mm -hmm. now, which to me is a very interesting, I don't want to say I'm like, I welcome any change at this point. It's like, whatever, we'll do anything. We'll try anything new. (laughs) But that to me is really interesting because it's like what, I mean, we do know that like corporate entities can do a lot of good. They can also do a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Um so hopefully they're taking that human centered design approach to this new project but i don't know like what are your thoughts on that like from an economic perspective or just like what you've seen like or even from the humanities like how like what does that this new sort of corporate
3: engagement
1: with the healthcare system
3: well, I think it could be good if they take the right approach to it. Like, for example, Walmart is going to start opening clinics. Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to say that? Yep. Uh, but uh, it's public information. But, uh, but it's really interesting with any business, it's about cutting costs usually to maximize profit. And we've seen in the prison industry that has not worked. When you cut costs on human initiatives, it, just, it hurts people. Um, so I think with healthcare that really needs to be taken into account that as you cut costs, it's important to cut costs because it's outrageously expensive right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but not at the cost of people. Right.
2: Yeah. And I I think that also makes me think about technology and how it's like we have this drive that, you know, if we have more technology and better technology, then we're going to have better healthcare. Um, and while we have had, you know, um, really great outcomes because of advances in technology, you do, um, often lose that, that humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't think we can ever move to a model that relies fully on machines or technology because we need that human element. Mm
0: -hmm. And that goes kind of back to what you were saying earlier with the trust aspect, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, with big corporations using massive amounts of data, collecting all sorts of data on patients and using that to, you know, help them, that's great because they have access to all of that information and, you know, they can come up with a solution, but also it's like, does that help with the patient trust, right? right. Do they trust mm-hmm. this corporation to yeah. make good decisions or do they think the corporation will act in their own best interest? Mm-hmm. And it's it's an interesting thing there.
1: Yeah, I'm just, you know, I, you are talking about um, the prison system and... I don't think I've ever associated that with this new sort of uh, health, like the new direction of health. I don't know if this is the new direction of healthcare, but like this corporatization of of healthcare, and that is really unsettling to me. Like, it's very unsettling. Like, oh my god, I didn't think of it in that way. But you know, you were talking about these pharmacies where you have like you know low cost. Well, here you know medications mm-hmm. we're seeing are increasing by. Massive amounts of numbers, and I think, I mean, we have healthcare, but not it's not accessible, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, the most important thing is accessibility. How can everyday people, or even people who are <clears throat> underrepresented in the country, like, how can they access healthcare? Can you talk? Like, can either of y'all speak to the issue of accessibility and how that kind of plays out in your field, or how you talk about it in your
3: field? Well, one thing that I I saw in India that was super interesting was the rise of medical tourism. Um, 500,000 people a year visit India just for medical operations, Hmm. Um, especially from the Middle East and all over Africa. And I met several people in Bangalore who were there for medical operations. And when my friend had to be hospitalized, um, it was really interesting. We walked in and they gave us a form. And on the form, we got to pick the quality of care that we got. And level like zero was like a 20 person bunk room with one bathroom. And then all the way to the top was the most expensive with a private room with a private bathroom. And I thought that was fascinating because yes, yeah. on one side it's good because if you can't afford the full services, you at least access the hospital. But on the other side, it creates a huge, uh, disproportionate society. Um, right. it, mm-hmm. like it, it just furthers divides between people um but super interesting medical tourism i yeah it's
1: fascinating yeah
2: wow
0: (laughs) that's really interesting because i mean that really just further perpetuates the i mean class system right Mm -hmm. i mean you have people who can afford it they'll be getting the best care because they can afford to um but people who can't are stuck in it bunk with 12 other people
3: right yeah and I'm, we ended up picking one of the top rooms in the hospital of course and because we wanted the best care that we could get for my friend and after seven days of hospitalization it cost twenty dollars wow. uh, Oh my God. Wow. um because, so if india can do that i think we can do that as well right. so huh. 20 dollars. 20 dollars. <laughs> i was expecting at least
1: like a <laughs> thousand yeah. i was like oh like a thousand and that was for
0: seven days
2: yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wonder what the equivalent to that would be here. Right. I can't even imagine. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, you know, we talk about problems with access in, you know, other countries, but, you know, even in Arkansas in the Delta, I mean, mm-hmm. you can go for mm-hmm. miles and miles before you see a hospital. Um, and I know that there are programs, um, you know, in med schools and such that encourage graduates, you know, to focus on rural areas or, you know, there's incentives to go into rural medicine. And I think we can continue to focus on and invest programs in programs like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, because we see with across the board, not just in the medical industry, there's a trend towards going to big cities, Mm -hmm. right? And then that just kind of neglects the rural communities and a lot of those um, communities that may not be attracting the talent. And Mm -hmm. so it's almost like we're separating ourselves.
1: Mm -hmm. We have hospitals and stuff closing down in rural areas Mm -hmm. too, and And doctors who are leaving, um, which is, you know, I'm from a really rural part of Arkansas, but we had a hospital 30 minutes in either direction so it wasn't as isolated as when you get further south Mm -hmm. or closer to the delta also in Arkansas. Hmm. Can you tell us um and I mean this is not to switch gears or anything but can you tell us a little bit about like what your medical humanities colloquium colloquium
2: Cool, It's a, it's a mouthful. I'll get there. <laughs> um, like what,
1: like what are these courses about? Like what are these, what do they cover?
2: So, um, it's it's an English class. It's housed in the English department, um, but it is pretty interdisciplinary. Um, so I divide it into four sections. So the first one is medicine and narrative, where we kind of ground our studies with a lot of the the material that I've kind of talked about already. <laughs> And then we do the medicine and culture section. And that ranges everything from, you know, thinking about, um, you know, cultural barriers and language barriers in medicine to, uh, popular cultural representations of medicine. You know, mm-hmm. what, what are we seeing on ER um, <laughs> all, or in house? <laughs> and those are always really fun conversations to have. Um, and then we also read a novel um, called Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko. It's a Native American uh, author. And that helps us to think about um sort of different ideas about healing. Um, it's about a um, World War II veteran who comes back with PTSD and, um, you know, goes to see medicine men as well as um, you know, more Western doctors. And so it kind of just introduces different ideas. And then we do um the patient's perspective. And that, you know, can be anything from um you know, just what it's like to be a a patient really. um, And, you know, the perceptions they might have about their doctors. Um, We also then end with a a section on the doctor's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so that's anything from dealing with difficult patients to how do we balance work and family, you know, as a, a healthcare provider and the service learning component I have I my partners are um, the VA and so the students that are placed at the VA you know when we read ceremony can hopefully make deeper you know connections mm-hmm. because they're actually sort of seeing some of these issues firsthand at the VA um, and then I work with um, a hospice home and then organizations that work with individuals with disabilities and so I hope that everything we read and everything we discuss is going to be, you know, enriched by the real world experiences that they're having outside of the classroom. Um, so that's a little bit how it's set up. And I also really try to make it a safe space for pre-med students. You know, it's often known as a very competitive, um, you know, track to be on and they have a lot of fears and a lot of anxieties as well as a lot of, hopes and excitement about their future careers. And so I hope that it provides a, a safe space for them to sort of share those with mm-hmm. other pre-med students.
1: Mm-hmm. That's awesome.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, do you have a question? I was just gonna ask, <laughs> Go um,
0: so I hear service learning a lot. And mm-hmm. so for some of our listeners that may not know exactly what it is, could you just like briefly define what it means?
2: Sure, so um, it's basically hands-on learning, um, experiential learning, but that is um, rooted in sort of a common good, so that um, you're working with partners to benefit the common good. And what Katrina said is really important too that you don't tell the partners what their needs are, right? You right. try to find out what those needs are and see how you can meet them. And and it is very reciprocal. So the idea is that not only are students learning, but they are contributing to their communities. Um, and then reflection is also a big component. Uh, so often students engage in service experiences and they go out and do it and don't give it any second thought. And mm-hmm. so a I, I really, um, you know, best practice of service learning is to include that reflection component, and maybe you can speak to other, you know, ideas you have about service learning, Katrina, mm-hmm. related to your experiences.
3: None of my study abroad experiences have been specifically service learning through the university. Um, my experience in Uganda was a internship with a nonprofit, and mm. um, so I get that was service learning, of course, because you can't go for two months in a, <laughs> that kind of setting and not take a lot of learning away from it. Right. Um, But I think it is the best study abroad option you could do. I highly recommend it to most students because it really teaches you to get outside yourself um, and to learn different perspectives and really teaches you a lot of humility. Um, I think it's often very important to go to a culture that is not similar to ours um, because that's just the best way to do study abroad is to challenge yourself. So Mm -hmm. I highly
2: recommend it. Yeah, there often is projects that that are happening that are service learning. They're just mm-hmm. not really always given that designation for for whatever reason. And then there are oftentimes, frankly, programs that call themselves service mm-hmm. learning yeah. and don't have some of those really important components like um, reciprocation and reflection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
0: So for students that you know may not be doing pre med or anything, but they're interested in learning about you know how the medical field works and how it what it's like to be a patient can they take
2: that medical humanities class so the medical humanities class is right now unfortunately just for pre-med students just kind of how it was conceived Mm -hmm. as a partnership between the english department and the pre-med program but i certainly am open to the possibility of you know opening it up Mm -hmm. at some point and i think that you know you could Certainly take an approach where other students could be included. Um, and then the health coaches program is for just pre-health students Mm -hmm. Um, But the medical humanities minor is a little bit, you know more open Um, so there might be students who are interested in, you know um, medicine and and sort of legal issues or um, you know students studying history that want to do, you know, something connected to that, medical advocacy, um, art or music therapy. So Mm -hmm. I I think there are wider options for students who might be interested in that minor. Mm -hmm. Interesting.
1: What uh, you mentioned earlier, you have a section on pop culture where you, you know, Mm -hmm. like what is, how is the ER talking about this? I'm really curious. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, Like when you look at pop culture, is it about, how people are thinking and talking about healthcare or like what is the what's some of the takeaways from looking at the relationship between pop culture and like health.
2: Right. Well my students are often avid ER watchers. <laughs> and so the, or Gray's Anatomy. So yeah, yeah, every right. class I'll have a student say there's a Gray's Anatomy episode about yeah. that. Um, <laughs> So, and and what's interesting is a lot of these shows, you know, they they do have medical consultants.
1: Right. (laughs) You know,
2: so they are oftentimes maybe trying to present, uh, you know, a realistic uh, point of view. But, of course, it doesn't always, you know, work out Mm -hmm. that way. Um, You know, like with ER, you think that every time you go into the ER, it's going to be this – wild crazy you know <laughs> people pushing stretchers in like right. maniacally and, and yeah. <laughs> you know, chaos everywhere and oftentimes it's a very boring like <laughs> quiet long. <laughs> mundane <laughs> yeah. long experience um and and so that's that's kind of interesting is thinking about how our perceptions are shaped by these shows and mm-hmm. whether or not that's good or bad and often these shows don't show um you know, the, the kind of bureaucratic part of, you know, we don't hear anything about insurance, you know, of the realities. Um, and of course there's, you know, really, you know, kind of over the top representations. We think about house, um, I don't know how familiar you all are (laughs) with the show, but they, they often, um, I mean, I think he's sort of, you know, eccentric and quirky, but also maybe an addict. I I don't (laughs) watch it. I I have a general sense but one of the things i think that's the most interesting about house is that they often break into the patients houses right um and then solve whatever their ailment yeah. is yep. and i think that there's something really deep about that you know that oftentimes what's happening in a patient's life are social and environmental factors. And you don't see those in a 15-minute office visit. Mm -hmm. But you do if you go into their home. And, of course, that's what we have students do in the health coaches program. They actually visit with with patients in their home. (laughs) So I don't know that House really meant anything that deep with it, but (laughs) that's kind of my read on it is it says something a whole lot more, you know, about how we can learn about patients in their lives.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
2: That's
1: really interesting. Yeah.
0: Because yeah, a lot of times you go into a hospital and it's just, you know, everything takes place just in the hospital right. Right. and there's nothing, they don't know anything about your, your home life or anything right. like that. Yes. And so you, it's your responsibility to communicate all of that information while you're there
2: right. um, mm-hmm. to
0: them. So that's, that's
2: really interesting. Yeah. And on these shows, the same people do everything, right? The same mm-hmm. person that consults with you, does your MRI, does your CAT scan, you know, mm-hmm. reads the results. And obviously that's not how it works in right. the real world. And so when patients, you know, watch those shows, they may have unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. about how the system works and, right. you know, how they're going to get the results
0: and how soon. And they may expect a connection, a more of a connection with a doctor, or who a healthcare provider, because in these shows, it seems like they're with them throughout the whole process. Exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not the reality. No. (laughs) 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 I'm curious. Um, I'll start with Katrina. Um, how did you get into the field that you're into? Like, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Like what's your journey from, you know, figuring out what you want to do to like, kind of entering into this space?
3: Yeah, so when I was 16, I went on a trip to Uganda for the first time. um, And I just really fell in love with the culture and I just thought it was fascinating. So I knew I wanted to do something overseas. I just did not know what when I was in high school. So I decided international business was a pretty general thing to get me going. Um, And then after I've gone on different trips and seen different parts of the world, I'm really passionate about human centered design and social entrepreneurship. So at this point as a senior, my long-term goal is to open some sort of social venture business mm-hmm. that would pour profits back into the community and help the people either in East Africa or in the United States, I'm not sure yet. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Can you explain just for our listeners a little bit more about like what that is like what that means? Like what is a social like what is social entrepreneurship and what does that mean to like pour the money back in the community?
3: Sure. A social entrepreneurship is a business or um, business venture that aims to help people. So it's about the triple bottom line, which is a popular term, which is um, people, people, profit, planet. So you can still make a profit and be a business while helping people. It's the idea that you don't have to start a nonprofit to be helping the community. Um, a good Fayetteville example would be tacos for life. So you right. go, you buy a meal, and they're buying meals for people in Guatemala and South America. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just one example. There are all kinds of social business. Um, huge, yeah. huge international example is Tom Shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a social purpose and but with a profit model. Um, I could get really into Tom Shoes how you have to be really careful when you start a business. Um, when tom 's shoes did that, they actually started destroying some local shoe markets by dumping mm-hmm. shoes in different countries, but they 've started correcting that by building um, shoe plants in overseas countries and providing jobs mm-hmm. so it 's just about the idea of um, making your business have a people focus mm-hmm. um, and sol- solving social problems with a business yeah
1: there 's a couple of other local examples that we 've actually mm-hmm. talked to on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melody Taylor with yep. Beautiful Lives Boutique, which is in Fayetteville, and also Kaya Chocolate. So, we also mm-hmm. spoke to Rick and Cindy Boozy, and um, both of those episodes were really incredible. I encourage you to go back and listen to them. Um, but that's one of the things that we really get into what is social entrepreneurship? What does it mean? Um, and that you can still have a business, make a profit, um, but you're doing good at the same time. So, right.
0: those two are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're yeah. not. <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, that's awesome. And you plan? Do you have any like plans? You said you want to open like a business long term. Do you have any short term goals when you graduate?
3: At the moment, I've been hired for a job with a big international company that I'll be starting with, in Chicago with them. Um, Wonderful! So, Congratulations! People. Thank that's you. Awesome. Um, but I'm just going to learn as much as I can about business, and then try to apply that with dipro- different opportunities as they arise. We'll see. Awesome. But, great.
1: I guess same question, but we going to ask, you know, like, how did you get into this field? Or even, um, I know you're a professor in the English department, so can you talk a little bit about, like, how you came to that, but then also what drove you to an interest in service learning and or medical humanities in general?
2: Sure. So I, I think I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I used to round up my poor younger sister and all her friends <laughs> during the summer and make them come to my class. <laughs> <laughs> um so I I think I always knew that was a, a path for me and I loved literature and and writing and so English was really just a, a natural fit um and then in, in terms of service learning I was a, I did my uh, PhD at LSU, which I know I can't say too loud <laughs> <laughs> around here, um, but I, I I got a graduate assistantship in their Center for Community Engagement, mm-hmm. and so I began to learn about service learning, and I actually had the opportunity as a graduate assistant to teach, um, you know, some classes outside of kind of the typical composition, and so I first incorporated service learning into an intro to folklore class, mm-hmm. and we went to uh, Friday night local Cajun dances um, mm-hmm. in Louisiana. And Cajun culture was really kind of stifled in in the 1950s in Louisiana. Um, and, you know, children were punished for speaking French in schools. And so there's been a real um, effort to kind of revitalize that culture and so one of the things that we did was we collected folklore from the Cajun people at those dances uh, jokes and recipes and collected them together in a book um, that they then sold uh, to make a profit for their company so um, and then I also taught a southern women's literature class where we partnered with a local assisted living home and my students took oral histories of the women who lived in the south and you know what did it mean. them to be a Southern woman and tried to kind of think about the women's experiences with the experiences of the women we were reading about. Um, So like I said, no real uh, focus on science or medicine, but just service learning. And then, you know, once I got here and got involved with medical humanities, it's just really rewarding to feel like I'm um, having a, a role in sort of educating future physicians, um, and it's very real world. You know, I, I went from open your books to page 105 to thinking about real people and real lives and, you know, the change that we might be able to affect in their lives. So it's it's been really rewarding.
0: The interdisciplinary approach. I mean, we've right. talked about this now for the last... Three seasons. Yeah, yeah. It's really in everything, and it's really important. I mean, no matter what you're doing, it's always important to understand how other people um, from different backgrounds or disciplines would think about a topic. So, absolutely. Yeah,
1: and I think that's what's so interesting about talking about like the like an economic international business like student perspective, and then medical humanities, because you know, just as as a former student, I know that you know current students too, but. I always thought that that was the thing like we, okay, I'm in English, so I'm only in English or I'm in business, so I'm only in business, but there's a need for all of those perspectives in every single space and this is something that Laura Phillips touched on. She's the SVP of global sustainability at Walmart. And she talked about on her sustainability team, you know, there's like a researcher, an accountant, a scientist, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a space for everyone with like underneath these topics.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great discussion.
2: Thank you. It was really great to talk with
0: you all.
3: Yeah. Thank you for having me.